Lord, again, we need your help. Speak to us, challenge us, mold us, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen. You know, it's amazing how much our children are like us. When our children are born, everyone's trying to figure out, you know, which part is like which parent or which family. In our case, it was like, you know, is there more Phillips in this child than there is Rodriguez? And, you know, this, this child has like Phillips eyes or a Rodriguez chin or Phillips ears or Rodriguez nose. And you know what I'm talking about. You've got kids. And you look at them and you're trying to assess that. And other people come along and say, oh, your child looks just like you. They're the spitting image of you. But that is not just true about their physical features. It's also true about their temperaments, isn't it? Don't you look at your children at times and you're, you're like, you know, I have one child that's, that's a lot like me or another child that's a lot like my spouse. Uh, some, uh, you know, children, they're, they're laid back like their parents and other children, they're just really uptight like maybe another parent. Or, or maybe a child um, is kind of a hands-on, touchy type of a, of a child where another parent is, is theoretical and there's a child that is that, is that way. Uh, or maybe um, one child likes to kick a soccer ball or throw a baseball or throw a basketball, but another child is, is much more focused on the things that have to do with cooking meals or things that are intellectual or reading books. And you, again, you know what I'm talking about. Children take on some of the characteristics of their parents, both physical as well as in their temperament. But this text of scripture is a daunting warning that our looks and our intelligence and our temperament are not the only things that are passed down to our children. And friends, that is a terrifying thought. You see, our sinful tendencies are also unwanted gifts that we pass down to our children if we are not careful about it. And this text is a raw reflection of David's sinfulness on display for all to see, especially David himself. In his children, he sees the reflection of his own sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah. And it's a horrible thing to behold. And yet it is the fulfillment of God's, I'm going to say, prophetic consequence on his life for his sin. One person has said this, godly parents have often been afflicted with wicked children. Grace does not run in the blood, but corruption does. See, our sin is passed on. Our grace is not passed on. Sin is passed on. Yes, physical features. Yes, temperament. Yes, intellect but also the sinful tendencies that we exhibit day after day. Now, hear this. It's not inevitable that your children will display all your faults, but it is highly likely that they will be affected by them. That's important for us to realize. It's not like this has to be the case, but but we have the opportunity of, of looking at our own sinfulness, our own sinful struggles, and saying, part of the reason why I'm battling here is because I know the implication of my sin will have its way on my children if I'm not careful. So it's not just about your own Christian walk. It's also about the walk of those that you care for, that you shepherd, that are part of your family. Now, 
Having said that, it is not an excuse for them as they look at our sinful struggles. No child can point to his parents and say, it's my fault that I lied today because you lied to me. No, that child is still responsible for their own sin. But you understand how they have had this modeled for them, that they have a propensity then toward it. And it's not an excuse for us when we have been affected by the sinfulness of our parents to simply say, hey, it's their fault that I am the way that I am. Certainly they are responsible for what they have done, but you have a responsibility before God to do what honors him and to see what forgiveness looks like through the gospel and to apply it to your life and to to grow in your walk with him. So I cannot blame my parents for my own faults, but sadly, Our sinful habits, our failures in discipline, our character flaws can easily appear in our children. Now, I think this comes up in parenting a lot, doesn't it? You probably parent like your parents or in the complete opposite way that your parents parented. I mean, I just think that's that's, that's usually a norm. You either say, you know what, what they did was really good, it helped me, or it was just like, man, I am not going to do what they did, Right? There's definitely an impact. There's definitely an influence there. The question is, what will your children say? And how do they view the things that you have modeled for them in the area of your sinfulness? Like father, like son, can be a very terrible thought. Or like mother, like daughter. Now, some have called this chapter that we're studying today one of the most disturbing chapters in the Bible because of its graphic expose of rape and murder. And the murder will be the second portion, which we'll look at next week. So for Thanksgiving, I'm giving you rape and murder. I'm sorry for that, but we're just walking through Scripture here, okay? And God has something very important for us this morning. But this passage is akin to one of our modern-day soap operas. But it's far worse when you think about it. Just think through the characters here. There's five main characters. There's David, and you already know a lot about him. There's Amnon, David's eldest son. He's the one that's lined up uh, uh, basically to take on the kingdom when David dies. Now, we know the end of the story that that's not going to be the case. But at this point in time, that's the logical conclusion, right? Then you have Absalom, who's David's second oldest son by a different mother, Amnon's half-brother. Then you have Tamar, who would be David's daughter and Absalom's sister. You connect into that here? You following where all the lines go here? Okay. And she is the step-sister to um, Amnon, or I should say half-sister, not step-sister, half-sister to Amnon. Um, and then there's Jonadab, um, and he is actually a cousin of uh, Amnon and Absalom and Tamar, um, and he's described as a particular friend of Amnon. Now, I think what's helpful as we, as we kind of unpack this passage of Scripture um, is to see maybe what the English translation doesn't quite pull out here, but there's really two opposing parties that are, that are, that are at odds with each other. Uh, it's, it's subtle, but it's there. You have Absalom and his beautiful sister Tamar. They're allied together. And you have Amnon and his crafty friend Jonadab, and they're allied together. And the battle lines are going to be drawn, and future combat is going to be established. We won't get into all the combat today. That'll happen next week. 
But we see here the battle lines are drawn. So Amnon is heir to the throne, but it is the throne that Absalom has his eyes on. Amnon, on the other hand, has his eyes on Tamar. And he ultimately dehumanizes Tamar, then ravages her, leaving her a desolate woman. And as we think about the literary structure of this, this section, verses 1 through 22, just think of it kind of as, as beginning uh, top and the bottom and, and kind of coming to a point. You begin with love, which we'll find out isn't really love at all, and you'll see it ends with hate. But right in the middle, verse 14, is the violence. It is the focus. This is where everything, or what everything leads up to, and it's what everything leads from so it begins with love, ends with hate, but at the heart, there's this violent rape of the beautiful, innocent, young woman of integrity, Tamar. And Amnon is driven by his lust to violate Tamar, and then Amnon is driven by his hate to shame Tamar. Driven by lust, verses 1 through 13, really, and driven by hate, verses 15 all the way to the end of this chapter. But all of this is the result of David's sin with Bathsheba. All of this is a reflection and a fulfillment of God's consequence on David for his sin. He, David is under God's judgment and reaping publicly through his family what he had done in the relative privacy of his own palace. So the sad reality is that over the next few chapters, chapters 13 through 20 in particular, David's sons will act and behave just like their father. But in chapter 13, 1 through 22 in particular, what we have here is them acting like their father in the area of sexual sin. Like father, like son, in the arena of sexual lust. Now, friends, this is a gruesome text. And don't, don't shy away then from this gruesome text. And just join with me. And, and there's going to be more of a somber tone this morning. I'm not going to be in, entering into you know, funny jokes and things like that this morning. It just doesn't suit the whole topic this morning. But we want to learn. And we want to grow. And we want to see what God has to show us this morning. So let's begin with what I'm calling a love that is forbidden, and it begins with passionate lust, passionate lust. In the first three verses, the characters are presented and the battle lines are drawn, Absalom with Tamar, Amnon with Jonadab. Everyone knows each other, but there's division, and it will reveal itself. And we're told here that Amnon loved Tamar, so much so that he was tormented night after night by the fact that he could not have her because she was family. And by have her, I mean have her sexually. And he would dream about it. He would think about it. He would just be consumed by her. And so tormented was he that he became ill. Now, friends, this is, this is bondage. Let's just say it right out. It is sinful, it is wicked, but it is bondage. And that is the place that he has allowed himself to get to. 
because he continues to ponder and to dwell on that which he should not even consider. It's forbidden. Clearly what Amnon was experiencing wasn't love, but a forbidden sexual lust. She was a virgin. In other words, yes, she was technically a virgin, but she was also a woman of marriageable age. She was, however, off limits for him because she was family. There's got to come a point in time when when you say, here's what God's word says, this is something I have to avoid, therefore, I'm not going to do it. Even if the person is attractive, even if I feel a connection, the answer is no. But you begin to ponder, you begin to think, you begin to tease, you begin to dream a little bit, and the door opens up in your heart and, and it starts to grow. But God has already said, no, 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 stay away, run away. So his heart is so far away from the God of Israel, he is now captivated by his sinful desires to the point that all he can think about is Tamar, the object of his lust. I mean, he's bowing down and worshiping his desire and the object of his desire. Rather than channel his lust that God, uh, to the God of Israel, where they could be settled by God and his law and be, be satisfied properly by the ultimate marriage of a, an eligible young woman that he could actually unite with. Now, let's just remind ourselves, sexual passion is not a bad thing in the confines that God has given, which is marriage. It is there for a reason. So we're not prudish here. God is not prudish. But there is a place where it is holy, where it is right, where it is pure and it's lovely. But this is not what Amnon is pursuing. He's not pursuing marriage. He's pursuing a sexual act with his sister. So he continues to nourish his sinful lust. And he's so entangled himself in his sinful pursuit, he is driven to find some way to, to f- satisfy his torment. Enter a friend. <laughs> That's an ironic word, isn't it, when you think about it? All right? And how is, how is Jonadab described here? He's crafty. And he's family. I just want you to think about it. Let's just step back and just ask ourselves the question. Are our friends important? And is it important for us to choose wisely and carefully our friends, absolutely. The use of the word friends is a huge irony, isn't it? A true friend would have told him, Amnon, run away. A true friend would have warned him to deal with his torment in a way that honors God. A true friend would have given him the kind of advice that we find in the book of Proverbs. Listen to Proverbs 5 and verse 20 through 23. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his past. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. That describes him right now, doesn't it? That's what he's, that's what he's experiencing. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Just describing the, the 
bondage of sexual sin in particular on a man. Now, if your friends are finding ways to encourage you to pursue in your sin rather than stop that pursuit, they are not your real friends. You can call them friends, but that's not what they are. Do all you can to get out from under their influence. That's why Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Or, or stand counsel on the godly, or sit in the seat of the scornful, or stand in the way of sinners. These are all descriptions of people that, that are acquaintances at different levels. We must be careful who we call our friends. And if our friends are encouraging us to go against God and his word, they are not the kind of friends that you want to continue to have around you. So this is no true friend. This is a skillful and wicked companion who is willing to help Amnon get what he wants. And he, he devises a plan to circumvent all of the protocols of the palace and family life. And notice what he says in verse 5. Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Now just take a little note here. There are some key phrases that are used here that are euphemisms. The first one is lie down, which will be used in a little bit to describe um, the, the, the sexual act. And, of course, the expression to eat from your hand was also a, a sexual euphemism for what Amnon wanted to do to Tamar. So make no mistake, Jonadab knows exactly what Ammon wants, and he is encouraging him now to do it. Hey, just think about this. You get this kind of from, from what he's saying to him. You're, you're the son of the king? <laughs> Why are you so tormented? Don't you know who you are? You have the right. You have the authority. You have the power. Your dad's the king. You don't need to be tormented. And here's a way to satisfy your loss. Of course, this reminds us of another plan that was set in motion from the palace by the command of David the king. See, David is seeing a reflection of himself in the behavior and the activity of his children. So now we, we want to turn our focus to that actual wicked plan. Amnon was completely committed to following his friend's crafty plan. So he does it with enthusiasm. First, he must convince his father David that he is ill. Verse 6, so Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Now what's interesting here, or we could say sad here, is the usually clever and shrewd David is now totally deceived by his son. And he sends, and there's that word that was used so much in chapter um, <clears throat> chapter 11, this idea of memory, David was sending all these people all over the place. That now um, he sends Tamar to go help her brother. 
He's totally unaware of Amnon's plan to trap her. And so now he, by default, has become a, a pawn in the plan of his son's sexually abusive endeavor. Now again, you've you got to think as David reflects at the end of the story on all of this, how he is just shocked, not only at the behavior of the children, but also what he has done in what he set out to do with Bathsheba and the people that he involved and how they were deceived and how they were manipulated to do his bidding. Now just consider what's going on here. David is sending his beautiful daughter like a lamb to be sacrificed. He doesn't know it, but that's what he's doing. But there are two unusual and unexpected developments. She goes to the house. She, she, you know, she needs the dough. She makes the cakes in the side of, uh, of Amnon. And then this is what happens. He refuses to eat. I mean, that should be kind of like, all right, bing. You asked me to come here and to cake these, you know, all that stuff, right? He doesn't want to eat. What's going on with that? And then right away, the next thing is said, and Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Now, we've got we've to back up a little bit and just say, you know, just a moment here. Remember, this is a sister helping a brother who's been sent by a father. She's just going innocently and saying, hey, I'm going I'm to cook a meal. Here's my brother who's sick, and I want to help, and she's being dutiful and all that kind of stuff. And you might say, well, you know, when he says, you know, send everyone out, hey, listen, this, this is family. You're supposed to be safe with family. But sexual lust has conceived and given birth to a despicable plan. And Amnon may feel like he's in control. There's one side of it. But the narrator skillfully demonstrates that he is, it's not Amnon that's in control. It's ultimately his sensual lust that is in control of the situation. Which brings us then to the, the next section of the story, and that is a violence that is deaf, a violence that is deaf. This moves us along in the story. The victim in the story, of course, is Tamar, and our narrator has gone to great lengths to describe her and to reveal to us her character. She's beautiful. She's dutiful. She's respectful. She appears to be a woman of integrity, but now as she bakes some cakes and serves her brother, we find her all alone. And like I said, it's easy for us to read the story and say to ourselves, she should have known what was going on. Or those who were, were told to leave the room must have thought something evil was about to happen. We, we don't know exactly. It's easy for us to do that. But at the same time, as we're reading this story, it's kind of like, have you ever seen a, a, a car accident take place? There's a sense in which you, 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 you see it, and you, you, you see one car coming one way, and you see another car coming another way, and you see one car make a move one direction, and the other car try and correct it, and it, it all happens so fast, but there's a sense in which it's all happening so slow, and you can see all the different aspects of what's going on here, and you, all you can see is a, is a wreck taking place, and there's just not enough time to jump in and to say, hey, stop. And there's a sense, friends, as we look at this passage, that's what we see. We, we see all these independent and ind individual elements all coming together, heading for disaster, but we're powerless to do anything about it. 
Here she is, she's all alone, and she is innocent. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes, and she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Again, she's completely unaware of what is about to happen. And again, why shouldn't she be? She's helping her brother at the request of her father. This is family taking care of family. Why shouldn't she feel safe? Why, why shouldn't she feel good about what she's doing to help her, her sick brother during this time of need? Why shouldn't she expect for her brother to be a little bit more intimate, especially at a time when he is so sick? You know what I'm talking about. There's a sense in which even when people are sick, there's, there's an intimacy. People might, might actually pat you on the head or rub your back or something like that that you wouldn't necessarily do at other times. And yet here she is waiting on her brother. She's all alone. She's innocent. Now she's all alone in verse 11, and she's pleading. Notice what it says. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. Now, she must have been shocked, not just by his words, but also by the fact that, she, that he was grabbing her while he said this. He's not asking her to marry him. He's simply asking for sex. Now, why does he make such a request? And then the words, my sister. That should be the very thing that should prevent him from pursuing this at all. But that is what happens to a heart that is given into lust. It sees what is forbidden as the precious prize to pursue. And isn't that what Proverbs 19, verse 17 says? Stolen water is what? Sweet. It says, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now, there's something even about uh, you know, a good Christian young girl or a solid Christian young man that can be from the world a target to bring down. The very thing that is forbidden becomes the precious prize to pursue. And it is possible um, to be a reminder and a reflection of what David did when he saw Bathsheba. And he remember, he finds out, who is this woman? And the person comes and says, oh, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And you have to understand that Uriah is one of his mighty men. Oh, we're notching it up a little bit now. I mean, this is getting exciting. Not only is this woman... You know, beautiful, but she's also married to one of my mighty men. Oh, this could be fun. You see how devious sin can get. It actually sees the circumstances much more uh, of an exciting thing rather than the vile thing that it is. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 even uh, gives us some indication that sin uses the law to entice us to do the actual thing that the law forbids. Look at verse 8 of Romans 7. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So even the thought of those things that are forbidden, sin seizes on that thought and says, well, why is it forbidden? Doesn't God love you? Doesn't God care? Doesn't he want you to enjoy life? Why would he be so restrictive? 
So that's sin at work, wrestling with your heart to take that which you should not take because God says, stay away. There was nothing mutual in his request. This is why she says emphatically, no, my brother, do not violate me. Do not humiliate me. That's her shock. And then there's her pleading. Tamer does nothing to encourage her brother. In fact, she frustrates him by her resolve to remain a virgin until marriage. And she pleads with her brother using three arguments. Argument number one, what I'm calling corporate um, or national integrity. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel Do not do this outrageous thing. In other words, we're not Canaanites here. We're God's chosen people. And that kind of thing, God's people do not do. If this were to happen today, it would go something like this. Think about the reputation and the integrity of our family, of our church, about the testimony of Christ, We're not called to live like the world. We're we're, we're here to be radically different. So stop. This isn't guilt tripping. This is is reality speaking. This is what we're called to. We're called to be the church. We're called to be concerned about the testimony of the body of Christ. And here she is pleading based on the, the corporate integrity of the name of Israel and its God. Secondly, there's this appeal to to personal ruin for both of them. She says, verse 13, as for me, where could I carry my shame? I mean, you want to do this to me, but you understand the implications of this on me in a practical way. And then not only me, what about you? You will be be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. He's not just talking about being foolish. This is an outrageous fool. In other words, if you rape me, I will be forced to live my life in shame, and you will be an outrageous fool, a term that goes beyond meaning foolish, but signifies a sexual pervert, a godless wretch. That's the reputation you're going to have, and I'm going to be living in shame. So no, stop it. In today's term, Tamar is saying, I would be considered used goods, and you would be on the sexual predators list. The implications here are staggering. The third argument is this. There's there's possibly a more honorable way out. Now, I actually think that what she's saying here at the end of verse 13 is simply a way and a a tactic to get him to stop. Because she says, now therefore please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Oh, yes, he would. (laughs) Why? Because you're still family. And it would still be a violation. But listen, she's in a desperate situation, and so she's she's grasping at straws to, to stop him from pursuing her any further. The bottom line in all of this, all of this pleading is that she says no four times. But as we'll see, he will not 
listen to her pleas. His selfish and lustful heart is deaf to such innocent pleading. So she's alone and innocent. She's alone and pleading. And now the saddest verse in this whole section, verse 14, she's alone and she's violated. He would not listen to her and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. In three short statements, we're giving the, the, the horror of his actions. Number one, he overpowers her, his physical strength. She can't defend himself, herself. She is overcome by his strength. He violates her, a word that expresses humiliation, oppression, subjugation. And then it says, and lay with her. The ESV says, and lay with her, but there's no with in the Hebrew. It's just, he lay her. Which lets you know, there's nothing mutual going on here at all. This is sexual abuse at its worst. This is, this is rape. The language is brief, and brutal, just like the act itself. But now notice what happens. Amnon quickly found out the deceitfulness of temptation. Isn't that the case? You long for something for so much. You guys know what I'm talking about. You long for that thing. I, I've often told this story of when I was in, in high school and we had a a junior-senior banquet, and my friends and I walked into the banquet, and we saw all the desserts laid out, and we saw these, these strawberry mousse sitting there, and the other desserts looked pretty good, but that mousse, we just started talking about the mousse. The whole time during the, during the dinner, we were talking about the mousse. We were eating prime rib and mashed potato and all this good stuff, but the conversation was, we want to make sure that when they say it's time to go for the desserts, we can get up there and we can get our our strawberry mousse, and sure enough, they said, it's time to get your dessert. And so we kind of, you know, casually, like we weren't in a rush, nonchalantly went up there and grabbed our, our mousse. We sat down and we put our spoons in there and took a bite, and it was just bleh. There was no flavor at all. And friends, that is the deceitfulness of sin. Your ponderings and your wanderings and your musing and your, your just being tormented about it and, and, and you're, you're thinking that what you're longing for is far greater than what it really is. Because there was nothing intimate and beautiful and God-centered about this sexual act at all. This was one direction. It was rape. It was abuse. It was empty. And we know that by his response here. A little while ago, he said to Jonadab, I love Tamar, but his feelings will quickly change. Notice verse 15, and Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. I mean, isn't that just like shocking in one sense? I mean, you got what you want, and then all of a sudden, bam, he hates her. My friends, that is not uncommon. Those who are abused through sex 
are often abused after sex with the same attitude that is being reflected here. Amnon hated her with a great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Just think about that statement. All the tormenting, all the way that he was consumed with this thing. Now he hates her even more. Verse 14 is the heart of the passage. Everything before it is littered with sexual lust. And the verse itself is a shameful display of sexual violence. But now that the act itself is over, there is no tenderness or remorse or regret, only hatred. And an exceeding hatred. And it's seen now in Amnon's words as well as his actions. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go! Now he may not have yelled it quite like that. But I don't think it was tender. I think he was done. I think he realized what he had done, not in a remorseful way, but the shame of what he had done was now before him, and he's like, get out of here. Get out of my sight. These are not words of counsel. They are words of commandment. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this, is, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me, which is a, an incredible statement. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Amnon is, is deaf in his pursuit of Tamar. And now Amnon is deaf in his hatred for Tamar. He still would not listen to her pleas. It was vile enough for him to violate Tamar, but now to send her away is even worse. This is a phrase, send her away, which is used as a reference for divorce. So it's, it's, it's one thing to violate her, to, to rape her, but now, having done that, he should have been responsible and taken care of her. So what makes it worse is the fact that he's even sending her away like she's being divorced, she's being put out. His desire to send her away is so intense. Notice he even has to have a servant push her out, and bolt the door so that she won't come back in. I appreciate what John Woodhouse says about this story so far. He says, it is good to remind ourselves why this incident and incidents like it are so hideous. It is because of the level of, abu of abuse involved. What is so abused is meant to be so good. A brother and sister should care for each other. Here the good thing was violently abused. Sex and the power of sexual desire is meant for the strengthening of love and commitment and unselfishness in marriage. Here the good thing was abused into its opposite, hatred, rejection, pure and brutal selfishness. The greater the good, 
the greater the potential for evil in its abuse. And that is horrible. Now, after being sent away, we're vividly reminded of Tamar's integrity. Verse 18, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So when she's put out, she starts to tear her robe and put ashes on her head, just like anyone would who was mourning. This long robe signified her position, both as a virgin, also as a daughter of a king. But Amnon has disregard for both of those. Now Tamar tears up her garment as a sign of her changed condition. She was now a picture of utter shame and utter misery. Looking back over the account, this is what we see about Tamar. She was trapped. She was ignored. She was raped. She was despised. She's banished. She's ruined. Now friends, let me just pause here and say this, that we must do what Amnon wasn't willing to do. We must be willing to listen to Tamar and her pleas. We must grieve over all those who have been put in Tamar's position and been abused. And we must be tender and sympathetic of those who have been so victimized. Now, enter her brother Absalom. It says, and her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Which again is a euphemism for the sexual act. Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now on the surface, Absalom's words seem to be insensitive. But friends, they're far from that. By her physical appearance, her clothing, her tears, her dejection, Absalom understood what had happened to his sister and that Amnon had been with her. But Absalom is telling Tamar, listen, hold your peace. He is assuring Tamar that she does not need to deal with this matter anymore. Now, again, you've got you to think about victim mentality. You've got to think about what it means to be abused in such a way, to have to yourself go and to confront, to have to yourself go and tell the story to someone. And what he's saying is, listen, I got you covered. I've got you covered. I'll take responsibility for you. And since Abner, uh, or Amnon, her, her brother, um, is the heir apparent, Absalom would be taking the matter into his own heart. In other words, he is taking her problem into his heart, and he is now going to exercise justice as it should be exercised. Now, we find that's the latter part of the, the chapter. It's not a pretty picture either. And this is not the way it should have happened. But Absalom's words didn't resolve anything. 
But they did communicate that although she was a desolate woman, she would be safe in his house under his protection. For someone who has been abused, safety is key. And knowing that someone will represent her on her behalf is a comfort. Now notice as we finish up the story, the anger that we see in both Absalom and David. Notice David's anger. This is where he enters now kind of in the story again. Verse 21, when David heard of all these things, he was not just angry, he was very angry. He was furious. And we're not told what that looked like. But that's as far as it went. He did not confront or chastise Amnon at all. In fact, when Amnon ends up dying, David is consumed. His angry, he is angry, but his silence is deafening. And again, he reminds us of Eli at the beginning of 1 Samuel, who failed to curb the wickedness of his sons. And so, you know, we're, we're left with a question here about David. And it's not a wonderful, these are not wonderful questions, but why does David not speak up? Why doesn't he say anything? We know David to be a, a man's man. But he doesn't say anything here. Why could he be so angry at the same time, so passive? Is it because he is resigned to the consequence of his sin? In other words, God said this is what's going to happen, and so he's just going to sit back and he's going to watch it happen? Is it because he's so overcome with unworthiness, because he is one who has committed the same kind of sin, and so who am I to actually confront my children when they're doing the same thing? Is it possible that David is frozen to act because of his own feelings of guilt and hypocrisy? Well, that's David's anger. And then, of course, we see Absalom's anger. He doesn't appear to be angry initially, verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. But what we have here is a form of anger that's called bitterness. <laughs> he hated Amnon. And the, the rest of the story will, will bear this out because as you continue reading it says, and two years later. <laughs> what bitterness does is it, it stores the anger and the hatred away. It stews on it, it ponders it, it plots, it simmers, and then at the right time, it acts. And that's what happens with Absalom. This anger, it's a different kind of anger, but he is going to do something about it. Again, not necessarily what God would desire, but he is going to do something. Now, I want us to think through some implications from this story that I think we need to be reminded of, we need to be aware of, that will help us to minister to one another. Number one, this is just a reminder of this devastating nature of sin. 
when sin is untethered and left to itself, it will and does cause horrific damage to so many people. Sin and the pursuit of sin will change the way you think. It will stop you from listening to reason. I mean, how many times does Tamar have to say, no, 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 and give reasons why? Good, solid, sound reasons, but it's no, no, no. And yet, he doesn't listen. He's deaf to it. Sin pushes you to abandon and abuse those you love. This is family. Hey, we're getting together for Thanksgiving next week. How are you going to treat your family? Well, the sad reality is sometimes family is the place that we let our hair down and we don't treat each other very well. But sin pushes you to abandon, to abuse those you love. It, it causes you to think only of yourself and your desires. Now, if there's an example of that, Amnon is it. He had a passion, and he was going to satisfy it no matter the cost. Sin, friends, is powerful, and it is devastating when it is unleashed. And so it's a warning for us. And maybe, you, maybe you're heading down the path. Maybe not in this particular way. Maybe in another way. You're heading down the path of sin and you're thinking, it's okay. It's all right. It's not going to be a big deal. I can control it. But friends, understand, it is going to control you. And it will control you to the point that you will not be the only person affected by it. Others will be affected by it too. And when it's all said and done, you're going to look back and you're going to say, I wish I had not gone down that road. I wish I would have listened to God. I wish I would have thought through this and not been deaf to anyone, all the counseling that was given me. That's the first one, the devastating nature of sin. The second one is a little bit more sensitive, but so important for us to talk about the horrible reality of sexual abuse now as a pastor what 30 years now I've been pastoral ministry um, much of those years I've been a counseling pastor and I can tell you that the one surprise is how many people who have been under my care have been the victims of sexual abuse. And very few people know about it. This is one of those unspoken issues in the context of the church. Why? Because of the shame involved. Because of the stigma involved. What woman, or even what man who has been the victim of such abuse wants that information to be broadcast. Unless they have been rooted in the gospel, 
and understand their identity with Christ. And they're strong in that way. Their suffering and abuse, friends, is relived in their hearts when they lay their head on the pillow at night when no one else knows what's going on in their mind and they are reflecting on something that happened to them years ago. They struggle day by day. There are things that remind them that bring it back again and and bring that shame back again and, and bring those questions back there again. And sometimes they even blame themselves for what has happened to them. They still feel shame. They still feel disgrace. And what I want to say to you, if this happens to be you, or to you, if you are having the opportunity and desire to care for those who may have gone through that, is to think about the gospel, but specifically to think about the gospel with the area of the gospel that we call the doctrine of expiation. Now let me explain this. Many of you understand the gospel, and you've heard the word propitiation. Propitiation means a covering. It means that God, when, when Jesus Christ sent his son to die on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a propitiation for sins. There was a covering for sins. That's what the sacrifices in the Old Testament often were reflecting. The Day of Atonement, reflecting the propitiation. When, when the, the, the lamb was slaughtered um, on, on the Passover and, and the blood was placed on the door, doorposts, That was, again, a covering. That was a a propitiation, a a forgiveness of sins. That's the idea that is there. That Christ's death covers their sin. So they're covered, they're freed, they're forgiven, all by the blood. But the, the less familiar term and understanding is the doctrine of expiation. And it's a theological word that describes the fact that our sins, our shame, our disgrace is taken away and that we are cleansed. Now friends, hear this. This is a part of the gospel that someone who has been the victim of sexual abuse needs to preach to themselves often. It's one thing to know that you're forgiven, but you can be forgiven and still carry the shame with you. You can still be forgiven and not feel like you're clean because you still have these things going on in your mind. You may actually still have the physical scars. And this is best illustrated by what happened in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. Sin and its issue between the people and God was dealt with by bringing two goats together. One goat was taken to be slaughtered. The other goat was taken to be released. The first goat that was slaughtered as a sin offering, and that goat represented propitiation, a foreshadowing of the cross where Jesus would die on that cross and for the wrath of God and pay that that sacrifice debt. And it would satisfy that wrath and would forgive man of his sin. 
But then there was another goat, and that goat was, was, was taken, and that goat had its hand, or had the, the high priest's hand placed on it. And there was, a, there was a, a symbolic placing of our sin on that goat, and that goat was released to go into the wilderness. And the idea there is that those sins are not just paid for, but they are taken away. So this is what we call the doctrine of expiation, where our sin is expiated or taken away so that we are made clean through Jesus Christ, who is our scapegoat. That's what that goat is called. This is why we read passages like this, Leviticus 6.30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So the person who has been violated in this way may not feel clean, but they need to run to the gospel where God says what? You are clean. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the what? The shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. See, he bore our what? Shame. 1 John 1, 7 through 9, passage I think you probably know pretty well. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, propitiation, and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, expiation. Now, friends, if you just you know this is if you just have kind of a fuzzy general view of the gospel, you don't get into the symbolism here that describes what happens. And the person who has been abused may still feel, in a society, the, the shame. They might walk into a room like ours with other people who know nothing about it, but still walk with a sense of shame, as if people do know. And to that person, I would just say, listen, listen to the gospel. Your sins are forgiven and your shame has been taken away. You have been cleansed before God. He looks down at you. He does not see you as someone who's carrying shame. He sees you as cleansed because of what Christ has done for you. You just got to preach that to yourself. You got to preach that. So, because the, the doubts come and the reminders are there, and you just got to say, I'm clean. I'm clean. Three, there is a bitter warning about parenting in this text. 
This passage is screaming a warning to all of us who are parents. Your children are catching far more of your example than you want to think. Your sin is on display for them and will shape them if you don't address it. And I would probably say, and sometimes even if you do address it. So what are you modeling to your children? What are they catching from your character that is going uncontested? How are you shaping them with your daily habits of sin? My friends, it's a hard truth, and it's hard even to deal with it. So for example, if you have a problem with anger, you are teaching your kids how to respond to life when you're not getting your way. If you have a problem with gossiping, you're, you're teaching your children that it's okay to talk to people about things that they should not be talking to other people about. And your kids are taking that, and they hear something at school, and it's something private. And what do they do? They turn around and they tell their friends. Why? Because mom and dad do it. They're at home on their phone. They're, blah, blah, did you hear about blah, 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 Right? Why shouldn't I do anything different? It's been modeled to me. You have a problem with sexual sin, you're teaching your children that holiness before God really doesn't matter. And we can just go down through the list of various sins that Scripture talks about here. And you could say, what are the implications of this? Am, am I modeling for my kids in some way, shape, or form that this sin is an exception? And if I knew that, and if I knew the heart of my children and what they were thinking about me and how I'm modeling these things, would I not want to do something about that? This is a warning, friends. This is a gut check. None of us want to be in David's shoes. Now, I know the real victim here is Tamar, right? But the story here is still about David. And David is seeing on display the implications in his family of his sin. You don't want to be there. Number four, the unbelief of personal regret. You say, what is this? I'm referring here to David's apparent non-response. I think David likely suffered from the contemporary myth that says, takes scripture and says, you who are without sin cast the first stone. Basically saying, hey, because you're human and you're sinful, you know, because we're all sinful, you have no place pointing at anyone else's sinfulness. You can think about David. How can I speak to my son Amnon for the wicked thing that he's done when I have done it myself? The answer to that question isn't, Hey, you need to be quiet or you're a hypocrite. 
The answer to that question is, if I have come to God and I have repented of my sin and I, my sin is ever before me and God has forgiven me of that sin, he has cleansed me of that sin, God then allows me to get up again because of the gospel to live my life afresh and to take responsibility for life. My sinfulness is not an excuse to be quiet my forgiveness and my repentance is the means by which, as a parent, I can stand up before my children and say, yes, what you're doing is sinful, and you need to stop it, even though I did it. But you know what? I went to God, and I sought forgiveness, and I acknowledged what I did, and I was forgiven. And I'm telling you, you are going to stop this, and you're going to have consequences, rather than, oh, I have no basis to do this, or I'm a hypocrite. See, that's a myth that our world likes to take bits of scripture and kind of put it together, even within the body of Christ. Well, who are you? You, know, you shouldn't be judging and all that kind of stuff. Hey, listen, I am to be a parent. And parents who are walking with God, who realize their sinfulness, are broken by what they see in their kids, especially when they see that what they're doing is a reflection of their own sinful struggle. But that doesn't mean you should be quiet about it. Go to God, restore your relationship with him, and speak for him, on behalf of him, to that child, for his glory, and for the good of that child. I think it's interesting that, that David, as he reflects on this season in life, there are two psalms in particular that, that he wrote reflecting on this, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And in both of those psalms, here's what he said. Psalm 32, he says... I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And in Psalm 51 and verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. The, the point here is this. David doesn't say, okay, I committed this sin. I'm forgiven. Now I'm just going to take a back seat. He says, oh, no, 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 no. I am going to proclaim to those around me that I have influence over not to walk in the same way that I walked. Yes, we're all sinners. Yes, we're all hypocrites. But that doesn't mean we're to shut up and be quiet. It means do our business with God and reflect his truth to those that we are responsible for. Now finally, the scriptures are meant to be profitable for life and living. They are also, however, meant to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And so I want to finish this morning with a, a fresh reminder of the gospel for us all. David's greater son, Jesus Christ, has called us into a kingdom where vile corruption of sin can be washed clean. And he, he reveals that for us in just a glorious section of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. And it's, it's worth us taking the time to be reminded of that. Here's what Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Catch this now. And such were some of you. Past tense. So the audience that he's speaking to is saying, this is what has made up you. This is what you were. Now because of the gospel, this is not what you are. He says, but you were washed, past tense. You were sanctified, past tense. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if you fall into any of those categories, and this is not a this is not just a limited list. This is, you could add other things, but he's, he's taking some of these vile, sinful behaviors and saying, listen, this is who you were before the gospel came. And God drew you to himself and gloriously changed you and gave you new life. And at that moment of your salvation, hear this, you were washed, cleansed. That's it. You're clean. You were declared holy. You were sanctified. You were righteous. You were justified. These are things that happen at that point of salvation. This is who you are because of Christ. My friends, you know your sinfulness. As David says in his penitential psalm, it's ever before him. You know your sinful bends. <laughs> they knock you every day. But God, by virtue of his gospel, has given you the ability and the freedom to rest on what he has done for you on that cross and to apply it to your life and to seek forgiveness and restoration by virtue of believing and holding on to that gospel. We all need that. And if we're God's children, this is who we are. So we identify with even the Amnon in this text by seeing ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 here. That God can take someone as vile as me and breathe new life into him, cleanse him, sanctify him, and justify him is an amazing truth that we all celebrate. Lord, help us to consider, Lord, this very horrific section of Scripture. But, Lord, to do it in light of what it is that you're putting on display for us, Lord, you have been very kind to us to show us this aspect of David's life, to see his human suffering and sinfulness, to be a warning to us, to show us the, the depravity of our sin and the ways in which it is at work in our hearts when we give into it. But Lord, may we step back from this, having seen the, 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 the horrible example, and be reminded that our sin before you is or was just as vile and that by virtue of your son, Jesus Christ, we have been made right. 
We have been forgiven by virtue of propitiation, Lord. We have been made clean and our sins have been taken away by, by means of, of expiation. Lord, help us to rest in the beauty of what all that means for your glory. Lord, for our good, we praise this, pray this in your precious name. Amen.